Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Heavenly Father, as we close the book of Acts and our time in our first year as a church plant in the Gospel of Luke and in the story of the church in Acts, we pray that you would give us a deposit. Uh, We pray that everything we've heard, uh, whether we're just coming this morning for the first time or whether uh, we've been walking in this community through these books, we pray that there would be a deposit, Lord, that we would be able to have for the rest of our life coming out of these. And we ask this, that you would do this in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, I've always been fascinated by the history of World War I, and one of the most fascinating parts of it, to me, that I had never heard of was how the German high command basically helped fund and start the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia in 1917. You didn't know we were gonna talk about the Bolshevik Revolution today, huh? The beginning of the war was still ruled by the czars, but it was absolutely coming to pieces during the war because of revolts within against the czar and they're fighting Germany and it's just absolutely about to go nuts. So it's basically a powder keg, Russia is. And a guy named Vladimir Lenin who was exiled from Russia because of his crazy Marxist ideas, was living in Switzerland at the time. And the German military, who desperately wanted to weaken Russia in any way they could, thought, huh, Russia is a powder keg, and it's about to blow. And we've got this crazy guy, Lenin, who's like a match. What if we just kind of shipped him back into the middle of things? I wonder what would happen. Germany was probably more afraid of Lenin's Marxism than Russia was. They were terrified, but they were like, we don't have to touch him. We'll just send him because we want to do anything we can. And they knew what was in Lenin's mind and what was in his mouth was more damaging to Russia than any military thing they could do. So the Germans funded Lenin and his buddies, and they put him on a train, which mythically was supposed to be sealed, like you would seal a contagion or like a toxin because they didn't want him to get out. Think like a, a beast that they're caging in order to let out at the right time. And they literally put him on a chain, train, let him go through Germany, and he goes all the way and he arrives in Petrograd, which is modern day St. Petersburg. And that is without question one of the most influential train journeys in the 20th century. I don't even think it's arguable, it is uh, that journey of him leaving there and being sent back into changed the 20th century forever. It still changed our political reality. Think of what czarist Russia would have done to stop that train from reaching the station. It's amazing, isn't it? You know what happened? He got off the train, he lit the match, and Russia blew, and so did the world. There's my Bolshevik revolutionary story for the day. Check that box. Um, what a, where am I going with that? We've been studying the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, like I said, all year. And it's really one book in two parts. Remember, same author. Uh, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, which is the story of Jesus, and then Acts, which is the story of church, the church. And both are dominated by what literary scholars call the journey motif. If some of you are literary people, you might have thought about this before. Um, It's all about someone being sent on a journey into the heart of an enemy territory to reclaim it and to start a revolution for the kingdom of God. Political and ideological specifics, completely aside, 
each Luke and Acts both have their own train journey of sorts, okay? But I'm not saying anybody's Bolshevik. You're going to be asked later, what was the sermon about? Something about Jesus being from the Soviet Union or, you know, Lenin being in the Gospels or something. I don't really remember. Um, anyways, they both have those. So the Gospels tell the journey of Christ from Galilee to the heart of Jerusalem. Think of the ways that the enemy tried to stop Jesus in his story. Temptation in the desert, persecution, multiple storms, betrayal, people trying to make him king beforehand, but no one can stop him. Luke says at some point, Luke 9, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, meaning that's where I'm going, that's where I'm supposed to be headed, and nobody can stop me. Think of how pivotal Palm Sunday is in this sense, right? This is Jesus arriving at the edge. And if you were with us last year, remember he stops and he waits. And then he goes into the heart of the holy city. And then he goes into the temple to, clean, to cleanse it, which was the heart of the city. From there, Jesus goes to the cross and his resurrection. And what we read today, that gospel reading Jason read, is the very end of Luke. Luke ends with the gospel revolution beginning. Jesus is standing there. It's finished, he's, he's done the deed, he's died and risen again, and now he's got all his disciples ready and it's getting ready to spread everywhere. You should feel the, everything just bubbling at the end of Luke, like what is gonna happen next? And if the gospels tell the story of Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, Acts is part two and it tells the story of the gospel going from Jerusalem to Rome. If you were here last week, we talked about how the world is always run by the political and cultural powers, which are neither, they're not bad or good, it's just a reality. And in Jesus' day, the cultural place was Jerusalem, but the political center of gravity in the world was Rome. And if the devil was terrified of Jesus defeating sin and death in Jerusalem, he was definitely terrified of the gospel getting to Rome, because Rome was the center of the world, right? At this point, Rome had literally united East and West, Africa and Europe, through organization, through roads, um, through everything. Think of it as like a main water tank that all of the ancient world drank from. So you got to be thinking, if the gospel gets into that water, eventually the whole world could taste it. It, could, it would go out to all the nations. And that is the mandate of Jesus at the beginning of Acts, go, spread it. That's what combines the end of Luke and the book of Acts is Jesus starting it and then saying, now go, bear witness to it. And so the end of this book, which we didn't get a chance to read all of it, but the end of Acts, a huge swath of the end of Acts, multiple chapters, is dominated by the drama of Paul trying to get to Rome. He's like Lenin on the train rushing into Petrograd. He's on this journey to get into the heart of the ancient world. And he's threatening to pose, but nobody can stop him. So last week, we studied this awesome story in Acts 26, where Paul is in Caesarea, and he's on trial. And from there, Acts 27, which we unfortunately skipped over, but you should definitely go back and read it, is about this crazy, long, arduous journey of Paul going to Rome. And literally, it's almost humorous how insane it is. He's in the middle of a storm. And with some bad sailors who almost kill him because they're, you know, in the Mediterranean in the middle of the winter. So he almost dies at sea. And then he almost dies because they want to execute him. And then they actually get shipwrecked and he almost dies. And when he comes out of the shipwreck onto an island, 
he's bitten by a venomous snake. <laughs> it's like the Holy Spirit's in his sail. Possibly happen is thrown at him, but he just keeps on chugging. The Holy Spirit's in his sails, and nothing can stop him. It is so dramatic, and it's the story of the world. It's like, how is he ever going to get there? I don't know if you noticed this, but in verse 16, when he's finally pulling up to the city, did you know how, notice how it says some of the Christians in the city hear Paul's coming to Rome, and they go out to him, and they rejoice, and they meet him, and they come back into the city with him? What does that sound like? Palm Sunday, right? It's bubbling. The city is already a powder keg with the gospel, and Paul's coming into it. So what happened when Paul got to Rome? Remember, Paul was in Rome because he was on trial, because he had appealed to Caesar. And although it isn't explicit in Acts, we have every reason to believe historically that Paul eventually did stand before Emperor Nero himself and given a defense for the gospel and for himself. Isn't that amazing? Meaning, at just the right time, in the middle of the most powerful place in the world, in the most important city, Paul bore witness to Jesus to the most important person in that city, to Nero, who would later persecute the Christians. And we know the church in Rome, under that same emperor, would go on to suffer massively in persecution, just as Jesus did in Jerusalem, but that, in due time, it would be Rome, which would be the center from which the gospel flooded into the world. I love that description in Isaiah uh, that Robert read about the glory and knowledge of the Lord filling the earth like the waters cover the sea. Rome, in some ways, is the fountainhead, as we know historically, where that happened. Now, we know that's what happened, but that's not how Luke chooses to end Acts. Flip, flip to the end with me. Um, when you see the end of your reading in the book of Acts, that is the end of the book. In fact, it doesn't really end. It's kind of like a cliffhanger. Basically, Paul gets into town. He's a prisoner. He has the Jewish people into his house, and he preaches to them. And then he has the Gentiles come to him, and he preaches to them. And then basically, I think it ends with an ellipsis, which is a dot, dot, dot. That's why the sermon title is church, dot, dot, dot. Caitlin texted me this week, like, what's the sermon title? I was like, that is the sermon title. She was like, whoa. <laughs> Read verses 30 to 31 with me. This is the very end, okay? He lived two whole years at his own expense, and Paul is in house arrest, and he's chained to a Roman the whole time. So it's hilarious. And welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's the end of the book. Luke is a genius author, so it's not like he didn't know how to end the book. It's not like this guy doesn't have a lesson in writing stories. He wrote Luke, for goodness sakes, and the ending of Luke is epic. It's also not like he died in the middle of writing it and was like, well, you know, we really wanted Acts 29, but Luke died, so that's a bummer. Why the cliffhanger? I think Luke doesn't finish this church's story because the church's story, you're expecting me to say this, is not finished. It's an ellipsis. Acts is still going. You and I are writing the book of Acts. Think of Luke as part one, from Galilee to Jerusalem. Everything starts on the cornerstone, right? Part two, Acts, Jerusalem to Rome. 
to the water tank of the world. And I think part three is what you and I are part of, which is Rome to everywhere else for the rest of time. Two simple truths I want us to take from this book, from this chapter, and also from the whole book as a whole. So I'm just going to try to tie off the bow from our time in the book of Acts today. Two simple truths. Number one, the story of the church in Acts is our story. Number two, the task of the church in Acts is our task. So the story of the church in Acts is our story. The task of the church in Acts is our task as the church. So first, it's our story. Just as there, there is a direct, unbreakable bond between the life of Jesus and the life of church, at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, do you guys remember that? That's what Pentecost and Ascension are all about. You cannot separate Jesus and what the disciples in the church are doing in Acts. Just as that's true, you cannot separate us from the first church in Acts. You can't do it. We confess each week we believe in one holy Catholic, meaning universal, apostolic, meaning deeply historical church. When you say that, you are saying, I believe there is no break in the chain. Do you know that's what you're confessing when you say that? I believe there's one church, and she has never faltered. She's never been broken. There's one. That means that when Jesus says to the people at the beginning of Acts, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, that he's talking to you. That means we're a part of the drama of biblical history. We are Lydia. We are Cornelius. We are the Ethiopian eunuch. That is you. That's me. This is so important because knowing you're a part of a story and knowing what story that is is so absolutely fundamental to being a human. You're supposed to know it. Don't let anybody tell you that you don't need to know what story you're in. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. It's one of my favorites. Um, but it's about this guy who's living this dull life, and then he hears somebody narrating his life. Uh, like he's brushing in teeth, and he's like, oh, they're, you know, he's brushing his teeth, and he freaks out. And it's hilarious, because then he has to find out, what story am I in? Who's narrating my story, and what kind of story is it? So he goes to this professor. It's Will Ferrell, so it's hilarious. He's talking to Dustin Hoffman, who's this professor, and he's like, well, are you in a comedy? Are you in a tragedy? Are you the king of anything? He's like going through all of like Western literature to try to figure out what story are you in. And it's hilarious, but it's also deeply, profoundly meta in the sense that it's asking a question that modern people ask. What in the world is the story that I'm a part of? I love it for that reason. That is so critical to the church. If you can't immediately answer, this is what the church is, this is the story she's a part of, this is her task in that story, things can get really weird and really bad really fast. Some of you maybe have been in a church that couldn't answer that question well, and it went sideways. We're a club, we're an entertainment industry, oh gosh, that would be awful. There's a lot of better entertainment you can have than being in Edgewood on a Sunday morning. We're a bubble, we're a prison. The scriptures answer that question, what story are we a part of, so clearly. Amen? We don't need to wonder about that. The church is an integral part of the great drama of God. That's our story. 
We're called by Jesus, like he does in the beginning of Acts, to be empowered by the Spirit, to bear witness, and to spread the kingdom. That means your life, here's going back to Lenin for a second, Bolshevism aside, that means your life has its own gospel journey motif. Your life is meant to have a journey motif. You yourself have a task in spreading and going somewhere and moving and being a part of this great movement from your house to your work to your city to wherever. So here's a great question I would love for you to consider right now and this week. Where is your gospel journey motif taking you? Maybe another way to ask that question, to where do you feel like the Holy Spirit might be compelling you to set your face towards? I was talking with a friend this week who's trying to figure out what she wants to do with her life and thinking about the idea of places and people and movements. Sometimes God gives you a heart for a certain type of people or a place, whether it's a city or a neighborhood or an institution, a movement. That's something the Holy Spirit will do for each of us differently. But what a cool, what a cool question to think about. The story of Acts is our story. That's the first thing. You're an ambassador. You're a part of the kingdom of God. The second, the task of the church in Acts is our task. In other words, as we write this story, we're called to the same work that the church in Acts did today. And Luke is so smart. I think he sums up everything in these last two verses that sum up all of the church's life in Acts. Let's read it one more time. Go back there with me. If you have a, a pen, um, I want you to underline a few things. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and underlined, welcomed all who came to him. And then underline, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and you can underline, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then underlined, with all boldness. And finally, without hindrance. Paul lives in Rome, and I think if you were going to bring those into two things, he welcomes and he proclaims. These two verbs sum up, I think, the main work of the church in Acts and also what we're called to do. So let's start with welcoming. Basically, Paul gets to Rome, and for two years, he has office hours. Literally. He can't go anywhere. He's literally chained to Maximus, so he's not, you know, going to go outside. He just has an open door. And his life is welcoming anybody who comes in, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. I think this is characteristic of Acts as a whole, right? Remember how Acts starts in Pentecost? What happens as a result of the Holy Spirit coming? Unity. People that had been so completely divided by language and culture and everything were unified. Remember, we talked about how wherever the Spirit is, there's a movement towards unity. Wherever there's not, wherever sin is reigning, there's a movement towards division. And you feel that in your life, do you not? You ever feel like a force is in your life driving you apart? A spirit, the Spirit, the work of the Spirit is being a force in your life, moving people together. And then after Pentecost, you just get one crazy story after another. You're like, oh my gosh, an Ethiopian eunuch 
nothing prevents him from being baptized. And then it's like Cornelius, Maximus is in, you know. Lydia, the slave girl, the Philippian jailer. You just get one story after another of racial, economic, cultural, social divisions being pulverized by the work of the church. Amen? That's why I love how Luke ends the book with Paul having office hours. That's his life, is welcoming and do. So as we continue the story of Acts in Madison, this will be a part of what we do. Open tables, open doors. Personally, you need to know that the opening up of your home and your table, apartment, house, room, condo, whatever, is the tip of the spear. It is one of the great ways that the kingdom advances. Um, Some of you were at our all-church retreat. Uh, If you're visiting this morning, we had a kind of good chunk of us, whoever could, went on a retreat a couple weeks ago. And one of the highlights, at least for me, was a vision time we had of hearing everybody share what was powerful to them uh, from the past year, how God had been working in their life. And I don't know if you can remember, but a major theme was how people had felt called into the life of the church, into the household of God, and were known and were welcomed. You guys remember that? Time and time again, I was overwhelmed this person saw me that I was, came into, that I felt the warmth of this new family over and over and over again. And what struck me is that none of that was planned. That was never a program that we like have on our website, like welcoming ministry. None of us ever told anybody else to do that. That's just the Holy Spirit. And that's the church being the church. It's the church being exactly like Paul who did that, like Lydia who did that. And of course, like Jesus. What does Jesus do when he sees thousands of people like sheep with, without a shepherd who are harassed and helpless and in his deep gut, he's moved. What does he do? He gathers them up on a hillside and he feeds them. They come to Jesus' table. What does he do the night before he dies with all his best friends? Comes and gets them together at supper and he feeds them. And they're like, how are you serving us? What does he do with Peter who botched it big time? His best friend that really, really stabbed him in the back. What does he do when he reconciles with him? He cooks him an omelet, right? With salmon and dill. Don't salmon and dill go together? I'm not a chef. Maybe not. Seriously, he literally cooks him breakfast. It's easy to hate people over social media, right? It's easy to misunderstand somebody when you hear about them through your news bubble. And yes, the news you watch is biased. Everybody says. It's easy to hate the other side of whatever side you're on. It's easy to isolate ourselves. It's hard to do those things when you're sitting at someone's table and you're eating food that they prepared for you. So on an individual level, this is a huge part of the work of the church, welcoming, having an open table. And on a corporate church level, we are called to be a uniting barrier crossing force. After studying Acts, uh, I hope you're convinced as I am, this has been a genuine conviction of mine after studying this book about how the church, integral to the life of the church is crossing racial and social barriers. We are called to be a force of unity in the world. Our world is so racially broken right now and the church is called to be a part of that work. 
And like I said, I've been personally challenged by this. I think we have a lot of different types of people in our church, but I think we have a lot more work we can do. And there's a lot more hurt in the city of Madison and in America that we can be a part of and be challenged to be a part of. Um, some of you know this, but in our diocese in Chicago, there's this thing called Walk Across the Street, which is a re racial reconciliation movement. And it happened because a pastor in our diocese was walking into church and heard a black church across the street having a service, and he just felt compelled to walk across the street by the Holy Spirit. So he and the pastor became friends, and then the churches became friends, and then all these other communities in Chicago, which is very divided, began to come together. You cannot read the book of Acts and think, that's awesome for that guy, but I'm not called to that. I genuinely think you can't. Yes, you are. Amen? If you're a part of the church, you are called to cross barriers. It's our inheritance. Here's another question. Where might God be calling you to cross over? That's a scary, scary thing to think about because it takes a lot of bravery. Some of the barriers that Paul crossed, he was actually persecuted for. Um, it takes open time. It takes sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. It's not a program. Remember, Paul had no idea he was going to meet Lydia and all those people when he got to Philippi. I really, just again, speaking completely honestly, I really want to have the courage as a church to ask the Holy Spirit to give us some of those opportunities and promptings. And I pray that we have the courage to cross them when they come. You guys want to do that too? Yeah. Let's do it. Church is called to welcome. And alongside welcoming, the other verb that summarizes the task of the church in Acts are the other verbs in verse 31, which I think we can, can combine into one, and that is to proclaim, using their mouth. If you try to sum up what the church does in the book of Acts, besides breaking down barriers, it would have to be, first and foremost, loosening their tongues and speaking about Jesus. That's like all you see people doing is proclaiming, right? Not just preachers, everybody. And what are they proclaiming? It's right there in verse 31. Jesus and the kingdom. That's what he says. Paul proclaims the news of Jesus, which is what we call the gospel. The gospel is news. And the kingdom goes. God, which is the life and the renewed world that the gospel ushers in wherever it goes. That's what they were preaching. It's not advice. It's not a dead religion. It's not self-help or moralism. It's the news and the kingdom. And that is what we are called to proclaim in Madison, whether it's in church or it's on the street or wherever you are. We're not here to just do self-help TED Talks or something, right? We're bringing something different. It's, it's the news, the life-changing gospel. And I love how it's not just welcoming, it's the proclaiming that goes with the welcome, right? Those two go together. Paul does both. Our soup and bread groups are our small groups, and they've just started. And I think it's a perfect picture. I was laughing this week about both of these things. Soup and bread groups are supposed to be two hours. I think they usually are two hours. Uh, and the first hour is just soup and bread. So it's just warm, perfect French baguettes with butter melting into it, and you're dipping it into butternut squash with some tea while it's a cold, rainy Wisconsin September day. Doesn't, don't you want that? Oh. But then the second half, we open, we're working through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to read through the whole thing. We're cracking open the bread that Jesus ate. 
you don't know the bread that I eat. Remember when Jesus said that? Every word that comes from God is what Jesus ate. That was his bread. It's both. And then we hear the news. If it was just one of those, it would be insufficient, I think. I think the gospel always comes with both. They're married together. That's what the church proclaims, and we'll finish with how. These are the last two words of the book of Acts. Luke ends it with two adverbs. I think this is so cool. This is where you actually do see how uh, Luke knows what he's doing. The Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. Look at verse 31. With all boldness and without hindrance. That is the mic drop of the Acts of the Apostles. Those two words characterize how they proclaim Jesus in the kingdom. First, with all boldness. Paul is not afraid, even though more than anybody else, I think, in the history of the world, this guy has reason to be afraid of, of doing this. Have you ever, like, you know, you watch a kid, like, get shocked or hurt by something, they're less hesitant to do it again. Paul has preached the gospel his whole life, and he has been shipwrecked and beaten and prisoned and stoned and almost killed and, like, all these things, but he's, he's just so bold. How the heck, where does the boldness come from? I think the boldness comes from the fact that he met Jesus and he was commissioned by God. He remembers it. Jesus is in his past. He's seen Jesus work with him and get him out of everything and be a present comfort to him. So Jesus is right there beside him. You see that in his writings and Jesus is in his future, right? He has hope. He knows, I know whom I believed in, that he will guard me, he will keep me, and I have a beautiful inheritance. So he's bold. He's unfazed. Even though Maximus is literally chained right there with him, he's, he's bold. And then second, he proclaims the gospel without hindrance. And this is just the greatest bit of dramatic irony ever. Paul's chained to a Roman soldier. The book ends with chains. And yet, it's a play on that. He's proclaiming the gospel without hindrance. The proclamation of the gospel is the only thing, the words, that cannot be bound. You can kill Paul. You can chain him. You can kill Jesus. He'll rise again, right? You can do all kinds of stuff to him, but the enemy never figured out how to shut his mouth. Isn't that awesome? We'll finish with this. This is from 2 Timothy where Paul says this exact thing, and it's just so beautiful. This is 2 Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ. He's writing this while he's in prison, by the way. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Amen? If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So brothers and sisters, we are the church. Acts story is our story. We're not just a hot gym, even though we're getting to the point of being a cold gym sooner or later. We are a part of the great drama of God. We are in the journey motif.
And our calling is to do what the people of God have always done, and that is to welcome and to proclaim with all boldness, without fear, and without hindrance. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.